solutions. Solutions, Sean. I mean, no, guess what we're talking about today? Uh, I think we're talking about Christianity. Yeah, just oh. non-denominational, broad Christianity, and some smaller branches. I, I, mean, I guess they're pretty big. But So the first one I guess we should talk about is what is Christianity? Oh, yeah. So Christianity is the belief that essentially that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. And they get to that conclusion by by way of the Bible, the Bible that has the Old Testament, New Testament, 60, 66, 60 books. And the New Testament is the Testament that actually talks about Jesus Christ and his life. And the Old Testament is what talks about the Father, God, and the Holy Spirit without talking about the Son. Wasn't Jesus Christ actually a Jew, though? Yes, he was. Uh, yeah, he followed all of the Mosaic laws that are written about in the Torah and what was what is now called the New Testament or Old Testament, rather. Mm-hmm. And since he was the Son of God, he put forward you know ideas on how to change the church and what is right about the church, what is wrong, how people were acting, the good things, the bad things, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So, kind of just talking. I guess, like being the voice of God, I guess, like what they would consider a prophet today. Yes, correct. But okay. in, in this case, at least in the mainstream Christian sense, Jesus Christ is, is part of the Godhead. He is God in the human form, just as the Father God is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Mm-hmm. So does Jesus himself ever talk about what makes him the Messiah, what makes him the prophet? Like what makes him related to God or does, do people just go on his word the whole time? Uh, well, they do go on his word. Yes. But there are also accounts of miracles that take place, uh, in the Bible and just all of these, uh, super things that we would call supernatural events that occurred, uh, in the Bible that were written about. And so people are, are witnessing these miracles, like the one where he turned the blind man, into a seeing mm. man, <laughs> um, water to wine, walking mm. on water, Lazarus. Yeah. Um, the resurrection of himself and yes. returning back. And then didn't he ascend in like ascend in front of people after? Um, yes. I think they, there was, as they said, 500 witnesses to that. Yeah. And they read like, about the Bible. He was talking about how he was going to go on to serve his other sheep elsewhere. Yeah. So kind of like a, a big cliffhanger, I guess in the Bible. <laughs> Yeah, essentially. <laughs> um, which actually brings us to our next, I guess, branch is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, yes. or colloquially known as Mormons, but we'll, we'll try to be um, politically accurate. And yeah. also, I do believe that the church in the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the October conference, general conference of 2018, actually had a big push for calling it the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rather than the Church or the Church of Jesus Christ or LDS the, or, or the, the Mormon Church. Mormon, yeah, or the Mormon Church or something. Yeah. Um, this is not the first push, but this is, I believe, the most recent one. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like a respect thing to talk about why um, yeah. it is Jesus Christ's church, not just some some random person's church, not just the Church of Jesus Christ or Mormon who is actually um, – Who's in the Book of Mormon? He helped, I believe, uh, put it all together, put the stories together to make sure it's a cohesive book. So he didn't write the Book of Mormon entirely, although he does have some um, sections and chapters in it. But mm-hmm. he did collect all that. Um, 
and abridged those stories. And so that's why there is the Book of Mormon. So what could you what can you tell us about like the Book of Mormon itself? What do Mormons believe that is different from the mainstream Christianity that most of our listeners probably would understand? Okay. So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believes in some things, uh, specifically texts that really do separate themselves. So they do believe in the Book of Mormon, obviously, and they believe in, I think it's called the Pearl of, Break, of Great Price. Uh, and then there's Doctrine and Covenants. And then I believe there's also um, another book. I don't know if it's necessarily um, a religious doctrine, but it is, I guess, a historical account called uh, Joseph Smith History. And it's a collection of different uh, things and lessons and stories of Joseph Smith and what happened throughout his lifetime. And if you don't know, um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints considers itself to be the one true church of Jesus Christ. And Joseph Smith, if you haven't heard the name before, was the first modern prophet, I believe. And so the tale and the book actually starts way back before people... I guess we should talk about Nephi, Lehi, and... Um, Laman and Lemuel. So Laman, Lemuel, and Nephi were all brothers. And they all, I believe, were from the Middle East, and I think specifically Israel. And they were Jewish, and they were they believed in God. And then their father had a dream about a tree. And then he, he partook of a fruit. And he's like, my children must have this fruit. So then he, he gets some of his children to try it. I think Nephi and I think it was Lemuel try the fruit and they're like, wow, this is amazing. But Laman doesn't. And he kind of grows bitter. And he's like, why do you trust that? Like, why do you believe what he's saying? So you follow, we follow this family's journey to the Americas and the stories that they have about those encounters and those experiences and how they got to be more in touch with God. And you just follow them. And then it's essentially like a little history book for a bit for a pretty big section of the beginning is it just talks about how like it's going and going and going. And then it talks about Jesus's impact there, what he did. It eventually evolves into a conflict between the Lamanites and the um, Nephites. That's sort of the beginning. And some of the core beliefs that they believe is, is that there's the God's head. So Jesus Christ, the Holy spirit and God are all one entity. And so these, these three combined are the God's head. And so like everybody has the Holy Spirit with them or the Holy Ghost. And that helps guide them with promptings um, that kind of are like a warning or just kind of like an internal notification of like, like, for example, if you're thinking of doing something bad, that feeling that you shouldn't do it, that's the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Um, some people refer to it as a burning in the bosom. Um, they're, they get all giddy in even when they shouldn't be. Um, but these feelings vary from person to person, but it's that idea that the Holy Spirit will only ever show you, will only ever prompt you to do good things. And Joseph Smith, this is kind of, I guess a lot of people don't exactly know who Joseph Smith is. Like they're kind of aware that like, or they always say that, oh, he's the one who founded the, the Mormon church, blah, blah, blah. According to church doctrine, that's not true. He simply was the first modern prophet. So he received revelation after when he was growing up, I guess I should say. He was growing up and he was struggling to find which religion was for him. Because in the Americas, there was, a, there was a big boom. When people first started colonizing the America, there was a big boom of different religions, different uh, branches. And they were all vying for as many people as you could, you know. 
it's it was a very competitive market for religion at the time, I guess. And Joseph Smith had this idea. He's like, no, this is these aren't right. This is not what I believe in. I don't think this is what God is about. And so he just had this internal conflict. And one day, I believe he had a vision or was visited by, I think, Michael, the angel mm-hmm. Michael. Um, and he was like, okay. So Michael's like, go out to the woods and pray. And then he received, like, eventually you get to the first vision where Joseph Smith says that he saw two um, two people. He saw Jesus and he saw God right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And they kind of talked to him about the gold plates, the infamous gold plates. And also <laughs> what, like, kind of a little bit about the faith and why this is the one true church. And so because he literally saw... Um, God and Jesus, he was pretty convinced, like I'm pretty sure most people, if they actually saw God, they would be pretty convinced that he's real. Mm -hmm. So he goes on and he follows what he's being told to do, which is um, go to the, where the plates are located because they're buried and, but don't touch them. And so they waited for years, like testing him and getting him ready. And so then eventually he, they're like, read the plates. And so Joseph Smith transcribes the plates onto paper and creates the Book of Mormon as we know it today. And it's referred to, I think on the book, it actually is called The Third Testament of Jesus Christ. So it's kind of like the ending of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. And like just for, for some clarification, when Joseph Smith went into the woods and he saw God and Jesus there, does that mean something in the eyes of Latter-day Saints? I think it kind of pushes and advocates for his validity um, as the prophet and kind of why he is right, why what he was doing and what he was finding out was true. I don't know. I haven't asked a ton about Joseph Smith history. For background for you guys, I have had over 30 lessons with missionaries and different missionaries at that. And we just never really talked about the first vision all too much. Not because it's not important. That's totally not why. We just talked about like different lessons in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and their doctrine, such as like the family proclamation, the church's stance on LGBTQ members, just core beliefs. So uh, Joe Smith history is like, it's really good, but a big thing that the church follows is the milk before the meat idea. So I was still milking it before I was given any meat. <laughs> and also with Latter-day Saints and the, the people who believe that the Book of Mormon is true and all this. One main thing that's a distinction between quote-unquote regular Christians and, say, Jehovah's Witnesses and all of those other sects is that they believe that Jesus Christ is one person, Jesus Christ. God is another person, and the Holy Spirit is another. But they are all together as the Godhead. But it is an important distinction that they are not all God. They are individuals in their own rights and not the same individual, which is much different from let's say the Holy Trinity of uh, mainstream. Yeah. Catholicism and other denominations of Christianity where they say God is God, Jesus and the Holy spirit are all the one God, but in different forms. Yep. That is definitely a big distinction. And yeah, it's just, it's kind of confusing um, especially like when, for me, at least when I was first getting into it, I was like, I didn't really understand what they meant because it's hard to explain that 
if you don't have your your head wrapped down around it completely. And the first time I was told this idea was some friends of mine were just talking about it and they didn't fully understand it. And then I eventually like went looking for my own answers. And a big thing is that God to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was actually human once. Mm-hmm. So like one of the reasons that we are on this earth, according to them, is that God was like, if you want to be like me, you kind of have to live like I did. And so that's why we were given earthly form because they do believe in a pre-mortal existence where we were essentially just souls who wanted to be like God. God is referred often in the Book of Mormon as the Heavenly Father. And so why wouldn't you kind of want to be like your parent, right? And so they they believe that we were in a pre-mortal existence and then we came down to earth and we were supposed we forget everything, mind you. They say they call it the veil and we forget everything. We're born and we have to live life in an attempt to come back to God. And by doing so and following his plan and what he believes and what he has set out for us and to live righteously, we can eventually attain a God status. But it's incredibly difficult, obviously. But yeah, that's a major distinction is that you can, you yourself can be God or a God. And there's also a large distinction between all of the sects of Christianity and this one. And that with their idea of heaven, there are essentially, there were, I think, four different mm-hmm. yep. different types of afterlife, so to speak, that you can get to. There's the celestial kingdom, the telestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and, of course, hell. You can get to all of these parts of heaven, if you will, or types of afterlife through different means. and. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about how you can get into, say, the terrestrial kingdom and what's the difference between the terrestrial, celestial, and telestial? Okay. So I think it's, for me, at least when I was taking these lessons, it was important to break it down into two main factors because it does depend on what actions you took in life and um, whether or not you uh, were married and sealed in the temple or sealed to your family. Mm-hmm. But the big, the big two, I guess, are doing right. Also, like living righteously and just being a good person. And then the other is believing in Jesus Christ. So um, the way I looked at it is it's like a plus and a minus system. So a minus is if you don't do those things or don't believe in Jesus Christ. And a plus is obviously the opposite. So to get into the celestial kingdom, you'd need to believe in Jesus Christ and be a good person. Celestial is plus plus, right? Jesus plus a good person. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there's minus plus. So you're, you don't believe in Jesus Christ, but you're a good person. So why should you be punished for something that you maybe you couldn't have been exposed to? What if you were a five-year-old in middle of nowhere, Mongolia, mm-hmm. and you never had missionaries around you? Obviously, you would not be exposed to the Church of Jesus Christ like the saints, so therefore you shouldn't be punished for something that's out of your control. So God takes that in account, and so you're able to be in the second highest level of heaven. Then after that, on the terrestrial kingdom there is minus minus you don't actually believe in jesus nor were you a good person but you shouldn't rot in hell for that Mm -hmm. and because like i just said what if you didn't encounter jesus and what if your circumstances led you to believe that the actions you were doing were good or that you just weren't doing good things that can happen Mm -hmm. but the actual bottom ring of um the afterlife i don't necessarily know if they actually call it hell Mm. But 
it's minus or no, it's plus minus. So you believe in Jesus, yet you still chose to do terrible things. That's why that's reserved for special people. What was it? Cain who killed his brother. Um, so, Mm -hmm. you know, if you end up there, you would find Cain being like, just burning it, burning it up, gnashing teeth, you know, the whole shebang. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's because you saw Jesus, you looked him in the eye and you're like, no, bro. And you continued being a terrible person mm-hmm. or you admitted that that church was true. And then you just committed to a life of evil. And I do believe that they at church and stuff, they do talk about how it's better to have never known Jesus at all and be a terrible person than it was to have known of Jesus mm-hmm. and continue to be a terrible person. Mm. All right, so with that, that was Jehovah's Witness, or rather. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes. Please don't call them Mormons. (laughs) And now let's move on to, I guess, Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know much about them besides the blood transfusion thing and now the abuse thing. Mm -hmm. And I know know quite a bit about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, So essentially, Jehovah's Witnesses were founded by Charles Tace Russell, in 1870. Uh, Charles Taze Russell was a Bible school teacher in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he was himself a Christian, but he had a lot of problems with the Christian teachings and the teachings that he was giving out to other people. Uh, you can think of him as Martin Luther, but for Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> um, so Jehovah's Witnesses believe in just about everything that mainstream Christians believe in, but they think that their teachings, that strictly the Jehovah's Witness teachings are the one teachings that are completely true. Mm -hmm. And if you are not explicitly a Jehovah's Witness, you will not be going to heaven. So you're going like straight to hell, like one way to hell. And there's this idea, I think there are going to be 144,000 people that are going to, to make it to heaven. And everybody else who is also a Jehovah's Witness, they will all continue to live here on Earth, actually. But this will be after Armageddon, essentially, occurs. And Jesus comes back. So after the rapture, they're slowly going to just be wandering the Earth. Correct. And they're going to be living in paradise, essentially. Okay. And they always have the idea that Armageddon is imminent. And they've had this idea since 1870, when the Church of Jehovah's Witnesses started. There have been many times where people said that Armageddon is going to happen on this day of this year, but it never happened. So just a whole bunch of false predictions? Correct. And it's gone on time and time and time again, but they still have the idea that Armageddon is coming. The end of times is coming. And because of this, they actually have shelters that they can go into that they have already prepared for when the Armageddon starts, essentially the government, the United States government and all the governments of the world start trying to take Jehovah's Witnesses and capture them and kill them. So they have, and that's the start of Armageddon, essentially. Oh, and okay. yeah, because of that, uh, they have bunkers and shelters that, that them and other people can get into to be protected and to be safe from the government and other people from trying to kill them uh, specifically because there's Jehovah's Witnesses. And some of their ideas 
are extremely different and one could say extremely radical in comparison to just mainstream Christians. For example, uh, as you said, the blood transfusion thing. Mm-hmm. They because a scripture in the Bible says that you may not have uh, that you may not eat blood. They take that as meaning that you may not even have blood pumped into you intravenously because they think that is well essentially the consumption exactly essentially eating of the blood taking the blood's yes life source i'm not exactly sure <laughs> uh, i think they get those from genesis 9 4 and leviticus 17 14 uh, specifically also they have this practice called disfellowshipping disfellowshipping is essentially a jehovah's witness who says they believe in a god or they believe in god but over time, they don't, and they, quote-unquote, renounce their faith and say that they do not believe in Jehovah, and they are essentially an atheist, or they change uh, religions. This fellowshipping is the cutting off of that person completely, the shunning of the person. Mm-hmm. I've watched many, many YouTube videos of people who have been Jehovah's Witnesses, but then they realize that they don't believe the things that Jehovah's Witnesses uh, they teach and that they all believe. And because of this, uh, they are all disfellowshipped, meaning that they cannot talk to any of their friends again who are in the church. Even more sinister, they can't talk to their family members who are in the church ever again. Uh, there's one uh, Jehovah's Witness YouTuber that I like to watch. And he detailed how the disfellowshipping went on and the ramifications of it. He was disfellowshipped, I think, in his early 20s, like 21, 22. Mm-hmm. But then he actually went back to his former church when he was 30 or so. And he saw all of his former friends, all the priests that were there when he was a kid up until 20 until when he was disfellowshipped. And the worst thing in this part for him was that none of his friends, when they looked at him, they immediately looked away because mm-hmm. he was an apostate. He wasn't a Jehovah's Witness anymore and they have to shun him. Mm-hmm. So he just couldn't talk to any of his former friends or anything, but he was talked to by one of the his former priests and asked how everything was going and everything. And I think the worst part of the entire video was where he went to his old home where his parents and his brothers and sisters lived. And all he could do was look inside the window and see his mother's face, but she could not look at him. Mm-hmm. And he he could not talk to her. He could not do anything with her and interact with her in any way, shape, or form. Dang, that's messed up. Is there any way for them to come back into the into the flock? I guess. Uh yes, there is a way. If they first repent. of all rep- repent, yes, yeah. If they repent uh, from the sins that they have committed and again become Jehovah's Witnesses, then they can end the disfellowshipment. But okay. until that happens, they will be disfellowshipped for the rest of their um, lives. For the rest of their lives, yeah. Okay. So 
you were saying how the priest um, actually greeted him and like spoke to him for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is that the only, like, is that the first step to like fixing it or I guess um, ending the disfellowshipment? I guess it could be. Yes. If, cause no one else will talk to him. Right. Yeah, exactly. Cause in that situation, I think it would be because if, I mean, you're a priest, you want people to join your church and if they've left, you want them to come back. So if you talk to them when they're in your church, there could be a chance that they want to be brought back in and want to be rebaptized and all of that and be in the congregation again. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, that's the only part that they can be talked to or okay. anything if they're disfellowshipped. That's, I don't know. I, I definitely think that's one, that's a big thing that separates Jehovah's witnesses from, I think most, Christians, because I know uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you can be excommunicated, um, and there is a very specific process for that. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of these different branches later, but that's disfellowshipment. Yeah, it's it sounds pretty severe, and excommunication exists. I know in the Catholic Church and also the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but no, oh, that's brutal. That's yeah. absolutely brutal. Indeed, indeed. Uh, but also... A couple extra fun facts, if you will. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses do not celebrate any holidays. No birthdays, Christmas, <laughs> nothing. Yeah. They don't celebrate Christmas, one, because Jesus was born to die for our sins. And that's not mm-hmm. something to be essentially happy not, about. <laughs> yeah. It's happy about or celebrated in any way. Uh, so that's a bad thing. And also with Easter, Jesus Christ died for us. And that's not necessarily a good thing. So they don't want to celebrate that either. Mm-hmm. And Although there are good aspects to those things, they're not trying to remember him for those. I guess the na- they're not trying to remember the negative aspects of those things. Correct. And so they extrapolate that out to birthdays and any other secular holidays of any kind. One, because with secular holidays, they don't want to be of the other people, like the the like associate with non yeah non Jehovah's Witnesses and worldly people. That's what I was thinking for, mm-hmm. and. With, again, with Christmas and Easter, there are reasons behind those also. So that finishes Jehovah's Witnesses. I think the next one we need to talk about is Seventh-day Adventists. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, it's either that or Catholicism, but I yeah. think I know so little about a Seventh-day Adventist that I just need to know. Yeah, <laughs> likewise. Uh, so what can you tell us? Um, so they, obviously, they're a Christian group. I mean, this might sound kind of weird to some people. But the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a website. The Seventh-day Adventists have a website. But the Catholic Church does not have a website. Um, I believe Jehovah's Witnesses even have a website. Mm-hmm. The Catholic Church does not. But the Seventh-day Adventists, what kind of makes them different? They say, like according to the website, they're the quote, the result of the Protestant conviction, sola scriptura, the Bible as the only standard of faith and practice for Christians. Mm-hmm. And the end quote. And they have 28 beliefs that are actually broken down into categories. So 28 divided into six categories. So there's the doctrines of man, salvation, the church, the Christian life, and last day events. So um, you talk about what it takes to be saved, what it, how and why God can, can transform you, make you a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like what it takes to be married, what their standards for marriage are. I know that they're what they call the last day events. They're talking about 
you know, like the ending of the world, the rapture and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And actually on the website, it's called the new earth. And he'll like, there's talking about how God will recreate the earth and will live with them. And so you'll essentially just be with God uh, forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually quote Isaiah 35, 65, 17 through 25, Matthew 5, 5 and 2, 2 Peter 3, 13. And there's, there's more, but they, they're really looking at how God will be with you, how God will be with them. And their church actually has its hands in all over the world, um, doing what they believe is good. So they're, I believe on every continent or just about every continent and they have, they call them world divisions and attached fields. I'm not entirely sure what an attached field is, <laughs> but there's 13 world divisions. So I think that's how they break up, I guess, like the governing bodies in the church. So that way they can control or not really control, but like maintain and manage who's who and where's where. Mm-hmm. And then they also, similar to the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, hold general conference. Um, and it's responsible for like spiritual and development plans of mm-hmm. the church. So it's very similar to how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints function in that they talk about plans going forward and I guess kind of like what the idea is going. Mm-hmm. Um, and they aren't a super, super big church but they aren't small by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in East Central Africa, they have two and a half million members in Euro-Asia. So like these are the different divisions. In Euro-Asia, they have 2,000 churches. They don't specify how many people in some of these. For example, Middle East and North Africa, they only talk about there's only 20 countries in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just mention the population size of that area, but they don't say anything about the members. But then in America, the Inter-America Division, which is like Mexico, the Caribbean, Central America, and some of the like northernmost countries of South South or Latin America, they actually mention and quote the number of members. They say three and a half million. And, you know, I could keep going on talking about that, but they are a hands-on church. Like they're like the world needs a church. The world needs God. So they are getting out and moving um, so to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They do have missionaries and people who devote themselves to the Lord and others. Um, I'm not exactly sure how long these missions go for. I can't imagine that it's longer than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. Um, those members of, of that church actually go for, if you're a man, when you're 18, you can go for two years. And when you're, if you're a woman, you can go at the age of 19 for 18 months. Mm-hmm. And then also, like, when you're older, even, you can you can serve. Like, not walking around and handing out Books of Mormon, but you can kind of help here and there. Uh, but there's a huge emphasis in family, which is not uncommon in any denomination ever. They all talk about how important family is and what kind of makes family important in heavenly sense mm-hmm. and in a Christian sense. Um, but I don't know what makes them special. Not, I think the seventh day, they're talking about Saturday, actually, yeah. as their Sabbath, right? Yeah, correct. Just like regular so, Jews do. Yeah. Um, so what is Sunday to the seventh day of Adventist? Do you know? Like, does it have a significance? I don't think it does. I think it's just another day. Yeah, another day. Just like Monday is to us, Sunday is mm-hmm. to them, I guess. I'm not exactly sure, though. This is definitely a mysterious faith. I think, mm-hmm. Emmanuel, you proposed that we talk about this. Why? Mm-hmm. Mainly, it was just because I had heard some things about it. It's one of the, I guess, three larger parts of, or sects, if you will, of Christianity, aside from you know, Catholicism and Protestantism. Actually, I just got the number for that, for how many members they have worldwide. 18 million. 
Oh, wow. one eight. Yeah, that's a lot. Large. They consider themselves a family. That's good. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Ooh, special days. They have a lot. I don't think they're as extreme as Jehovah's Witnesses on anything. Mm. But if you want to check it out, uh, we'll leave links to these websites in the description. But given this really short explanation, and don't get me wrong, it was terrible, of <laughs> Seventh-day Adventists, let's go on to something we both know a little more about, the Catholic Church. Yes, Catholic Church. So what do you know about the Catholic Church, Emmanuel? Because I know you were not raised Catholic, no. but you're definitely not ignorant. No. So I know a bit about the Catholic Church. It is, I think, the largest, if you would, denomination of Christianity that there is. It was the original incantation of Christianity. Uh, it goes far back until, you know, Paul and him talking to all the churches of Corinth, of all of those other cities and towns. Um, so the Catholic Church, they have bishops, they have a pope. Archbishops, archbishops, cardinals—all cardinals, of these. These are, these are different, I guess, rungs on the ladder uh, yep. of the, or different levels of the pyramid or the hierarchy of uh, the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. You know, with the Pope being at the top, and I guess just the regular people who are Catholics are on the bottom. All of the people above them, like the priests, on up to the Pope. They are the people who teach us about or teach people about Jesus and give sermons mm-hmm. and other things with the Pope having more power than all of them. He can give out decrees on how people shall live their lives and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're pretty correct. I think with the hierarchy, uh, I guess the, like the way you're describing it, it does make sense. And I, if you really want to break it down, it's the people. So simply Catholics, then there's priests. Um, there are also nuns on that level, mm, yes. and there are archbishops, or there's bishops, then archbishops who kind of oversee um, major regions, mm-hmm. and then there's cardinals, and then the cardinals are always vying for the position of the pope. Yeah. And currently, the pope is Pope Francis, I believe, who right. is like a super chill dude. If you ever check out his Twitter, like in a religious sense, it's popping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when. I think it was our freshman year of high school. So 2015 to 2016, there was a huge conflict around, around that time period. At least there was a huge idea of like, should Catholics hate uh, members of the LGBTQ community or how should we react and stuff? And I remember like, I mean, I never thought about it because growing up, I, I've, I was around people of the community. I saw that I know. I don't think that there are any that they need special treatment. I think that they're just people. They're just living their life, and that's who they are, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. It got me thinking. I was like, so what does the church think about it? And the Pope actually released an official statement saying that nowhere in the Bible does it say that you need to hate them. Mm-hmm. In fact, you should love them because Jesus would have loved them too. Jesus yeah. would care for them as his own child. You know, mm-hmm. so. The church actually is, I think, pretty fine on its LGBTQ position, although like it is like most faiths, it is kind of conservative. So it kind of lends itself to people who are against against that community, which kind of sucks, but it is what it is. But yeah, so you got the hierarchy right, its stances. Yeah, I think something big that separates it is kind of 
like when you're in mass. So they call service mass. I'm not exactly sure why. Actually, when I was little, I used to think that they were calling it math. And I was like, why am I going to math on Sunday? Like, you know, little kindergarten me did not understand. So I grew up Catholic. My mom is Catholic. All of her siblings are Catholic. All of my cousins are on her side are Catholic. But it was really her generation that was the most devout, I guess I should say. Because it just kind of fell out of, we fell out of touch with it because we didn't, it didn't align with what we were seeing in the world and how, what we were expressing with each other. And I grew up pretty close to my cousins. So I also saw that progression and I kind of, you know, when I was like really little, I didn't know. And eventually that just kind of led me to being agnostic as I am today. Mm-hmm. But the church in mass, the priest will break up a giant piece of flatbread and that's supposed to represent the body of Christ, right? Just like Jesus did breaking up bread and saying, this is my body, um, take take of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also there is, some churches do grape juice. Uh, I think they do watered down wine, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I never asked for the recipe. Yeah. Uh, but they'll, you, can, you can opt in for that or you can simply just get partake of the Eucharist. And you like walk up into the big, big aisles in the in the church and there's usually three so two on the outside one in the middle mm-hmm. and you walk up and usually it's somebody from the community holding it or even the priest who's usually in the center aisle and he, you put your hands together and you bow right before you go up and then i think he says take this in memory of me and then you mm-hmm. say amen and then you keep walking and that's only if you've passed your first communion which is a, a huge rite of passage for catholics when you're Growing up, you always see everybody getting these giant lines and you're like, whoa. And then they get this bread that looks like a little cracker. And you're like, well, obviously as a kid, you're like, I want that. Mm -hmm. But the thing is when you're little, you can't. And so you just walk up with an X. So your arms are in an X and the priest will just um, draw a cross on your forehead Mm -hmm. and you just keep going. And so it, it kind of motivates you to go and get that first communion. And once you get that down, then you're allowed to partake of the Eucharist. And then um, eventually by the time you're in, I think, eighth grade. So your first communion is like you're eight years old or something. And then eighth grade, you should be confirmed. Mm -hmm. And that means you're a full-fledged member of the church. You're uh, like a Catholic at its highest. And you just, from there, you're allowed to choose. Like the church is like you fully understand or you have a very strong grasp of our beliefs. You've gone through our way of living Mm -hmm. and the way my mom was explained is like, if you want to just leave the church, then go for it. Cause you now know, like you now know as much as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can always dive deeper. I've never heard of anything about the church, like withdrawing information or holding it back, but it's pretty out there. And yeah, like, of course there's scandals with the Catholic church, mm-hmm. um, all the priest rape scandals and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, the, the church is going to 1 billion strong. That's very, very <laughs> large. <laughs> And one thing, uh, again, with the Eucharist is that in Catholicism, they believe in the idea of transubstantiation. And transubstantiation is essentially the the bread that you, Sean, talked about. The bread actually turns into the Christ's actual body, yeah, the actual body yeah. of Christ. And after they pray over it and so forth and so on. And, the, and also the wine turns into actually the blood of of Jesus in actuality. And so they believe that this 
actually changes form and becomes the actual blood and the actual body of Christ, which is vastly different from, at least from my upbringing in a non-denominational Christian church, where for us it was just a representation of the body and the blood of Christ. No, Catholics are cannibals. (laughs) (laughs) I think another thing that's really different is that in Catholicism, obviously there's a giant cross of Jesus in the back, Mm -hmm. and it says Enri on top. I have never seen that at other churches. Mm. Um, In fact, actually, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Saints tries its best not to promote the idea of the cross because Jesus died on the cross. So it's like not exactly a happy thought. Yeah. But the cross says Inri, which I believe means King of the Jews. Mm. And the Eucharist is actually held in it's a little box in the back and you can see it. And they believe that Jesus is there in that moment in the box. Mm. And so when you take out the Eucharist, you are taking it from Jesus and then you're going on and giving it to his people after it's blessed. Mm. And then they also believe in Ash Wednesday, which for those of you who aren't Catholic, like growing up, it just seems like you get ash smeared on your face. Um, (laughs) But in reality, it's just a small little cross on your forehead that kind of represents the rebirth of Jesus. And just around that time period, like why it's significant. And you can tell because growing up, there's no way you haven't seen a whole bunch of people all of a sudden at school with ash on their forehead. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how you know is if you're Catholic and then you see that and then you're like, I forgot to go to Ash Wednesday because I didn't go before school. <laughs> so I've made that mistake a lot. And especially as I've grown out of the Catholic church, I've definitely been like, whoops. <laughs> and another thing is Palm Sunday. I don't, for the life of me, remember what Palm Sunday's for, but they give you palms and you people always uh, fold them into crosses. And so as you can tell, the cross means a lot to Catholicism and a huge theme that separates Catholicism from any other church I've ever been to is the idea of repentance is so heavily emphasized Mm -hmm. because basically humans were born messing up from the get-go because of original sin. Mm -hmm. We were born to repent. We're asking for forgiveness for our whole lives in order to just go back in heaven, Mm -hmm. which is like a kind of a dark idea. And I never agreed with that. It always seemed a little bit too dark. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just never agreed with that. I should live my life thinking that I messed up. I don't agree with that still. And I think it's kind of messed up. But that's what the church thinks. It believes that you have messed up because you're, in essence, the very first ancestor messed up. Mm -hmm. And so it is our job as humanity to to kneel before God and ask for forgiveness. And repentance is just such a huge thing in the church. And I remember growing up there, they taught us all the different creeds and our Hail Marys and our fathers. And if you ever see a rosary... At least in part, that's what that's for. So like when you go to repent with a priest and you talk to them in the box, those like, for example, you say, actually, an example that I did was when I was little is when I first started to cuss and I was still going to Sunday school, which was always in the evening. And we talked about, I just talked about how much I was started to cuss. And I was like, I don't know necessarily if this is what God wants and stuff. And then he's just like, okay, go around the rosary and do five our fathers and then three Hail Marys or something like that. And so you just, mm-hmm. you move your fingers along the beads and all the big beads are our fathers and all the little beads are Hail Marys. And then I forget what the biggest bead is. Like eventually you work your way around and you get to the 
to the cross itself and then a bead or a picture of the Virgin Mary. But there are specific prayers for that one that I never really could wrap my head around because they were hard. It's hard to remember that many prayers as a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a huge thing is repentance. So yeah, that just about does it for uh, this episode. Uh, we will actually be going deeper into all of these different sects of Christianity mm-hmm. in episodes coming after this one. I don't know which one we'll be starting on. Maybe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm not sure. I think so. And I actually have an idea for a guest. Right. Um, and also, I promise we'll do a better job on Seventh-day Adventists. But that was it. Uh, thanks for listening. And check out our other episodes. Um, but catch you next time. Bye.